I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. It's the Movie Day Podcast with Rick and Dave. I'm Dave. And I'm Rick. And uh, we're here today to talk about Blade Runner. We are. We're in person today. We are in person. We are not remote. Uh, We are both fully vaccinated. I'm actually able to be here in your studio. Yes, yes. This Um, is is a first. Enjoying some of your beverages and um, just uh, enjoying your company. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. Yeah. And we just completed uh, our, I don't know how many viewings in your life you've watched Blade Runner. Many. I've watched it many. But yeah. uh, we had a little special treat. We did. We watched the unrated theatrical cut on VHS. And I mean literally on VHS. Literally on VHS. It was the VHS <laughs> cassette in the machine. We weren't sure if we, it was going to make No, there was, there was touch and go there a few times. Uh yeah. Moments that we thought the tape might just actually like break in the machine. That was it. But it kind of constantly sounded like it would break. It <laughs> right. wanted to break. And it was like, well, I'm trying to hold on to it. You know, I'm trying to make it through here for you guys. But somehow it, it, it worked because, you know, Blade Runner in some ways has that retro future, right? That's a term. Sure does. Retro future kind of feel to it. And yeah. so to watch it, it's already a dark movie to begin with. And to just kind of watch it in that really low res state was kind of a kind of a treat. It was actually very much a treat because most of us who watched Blade Runner for the first time, at least those of us who were around, you know, when it was a thing for the first time, that's the way we watched it. We watched it on VHS. Yep. Now, obviously, there were many, many people who saw it in the theater. Well, not many, many. I'm sure you'll get into the stats on right, that. Right. But people saw it in the theater, but. Um, I'm sure, Dave, like you, uh, or like me, you probably saw it on VHS tape somewhere around uh, 84, maybe 85. That sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So it was like be, right being back there in the living room, except that in this case, it was a 10-foot uh, screen. Right. So the resolution didn't look quite yeah. as fast yeah. on my 100-inch screen. But It's funny. When you're watching it on 100 inches, you see how bad the resolution <laughs> right. is. You know, right. and you... Uh, you forget that most of the time you were watching those VHS tapes on 20 inches or, right. you know, 30 inches or whatever. Well, people know. forget that resolution really it matters based on the size of the display, right? Yeah. So 4K, most people would argue, unless you have like a 100-inch screen or more, right, right. you're not going to see a difference on a, on a traditional 45-inch television. True. And I saw a commercial the other day for the new Samsung phone, 
and they were they were bragging yeah. that it records in 8K. Yeah. <laughs> and they're watching it on like yeah, a oh, thank God. five-inch screen. Yeah. Anyway, All yes. All right, anyway. <laughs> it was a great way to watch it. We, we You know, when you brought that up, we, were, we you said you had the, the cassette, and I was like, well, we got to watch it on that. Because that's how I, I first watched it. Yeah. You know, I, I would have been... Uh, there was nobody else in my family who was watching Blade Runner. So I would have been on my own, you know, probably renting it from the video store and uh, watching it on my own because it's something... Well, frankly, because Harrison Ford was in it. Well, were you expecting another Star Wars? Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was. <laughs> you were sorely disappointed. <laughs> I probably was. I uh, it was It was probably one of those things that as a kid, as I watched it, uh, I didn't know what the heck I was seeing. And then, you know, you, right. your taste becomes a little more refined and right. you understand why it's good. And then everybody starts telling you it's really good and, and you understand why it's good. So well, I remember probably the same same thing, expecting Star Wars, realized pretty quickly yeah. I wasn't going to get Star Wars. Um, I remember being taken by the atmosphere of it all. Um, completely missing half the movie, I'm sure, not yeah. understanding anything really. But I do know that I stuck with it, and I really liked it. For, I couldn't put my finger on it, but yeah. I know that I liked it, and I stuck with it. And yeah, like you say, you, you read enough about it eventually, and, and then you get to college, and you find out there are other people like you. Yes. Also <laughs> watch the movie. Weird people like you. <laughs> yes, every... 20th person you ask have you seen Blade Runner and you know no 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 but you find that one person who's seen Blade Runner so well when we were in college so in 92 is when they came out with the director's cut ah and the director's cut is kind of a misnomer because really it's not the director's cut they tried to hobble together more of Ridley Scott's actual vision I think you mean cobble together but that's what, what did I said say? hobble together oh, hobble well, hobble cobble hobble in the sense that they didn't quite get it right how's that okay. they've hobbled through they hobbled through <laughs> see I took cobbled and hobbled and made a nice wheel that's of fortune nice. hybrid good and yeah I mean it was arguably better and closer to Ridley Scott's vision but it wasn't until I think 2007 uh, mm. The final cut, which yeah. is the version where Ridley Scott actually had creative control, complete creative control, and according to him, that is the version that he intended. Did that come out in theaters in 2007, or was that a disc? I, I mean, thing? it was a Blu-ray. I yeah. don't know if it ever came out in theaters. Are you sure it was Blu-ray? Because I have the HD DVD five-disc collector's edition in the plastic briefcase oh, okay. with so I the stand plastic corrected. replica unicorn, the spinner. <laughs> you got a little toy spinner in there and uh, you get little uh, graphic cards and everything. Nice. I still have all of it. Yeah. I just have the final cut on Blu-ray. Yeah. So I don't have all the extras. I was an HD DVD early adopter. Cause how'd that work out for you? I'm an you? idiot. That's why. <laughs> were you also Betamax? <laughs> no, we were VHS family, but... Uh, I don't know why that was, but uh, no. Um, yeah, I got that. I it, like when the high def stuff came out. HD DVD made sense to me. It was like high definition DVD. I understood that. It's much simpler. And I was like, well, everybody's going to understand that, all right? Like that makes sense. So I adopted that, and then of course uh, Blu-ray one. So anyway, that's that's a different story. But you have collector's items now. That I do. Someday, you know, you might be able to sell on a flea market somewhere eBay or sell whatever. for eight bucks. Equivalent to eBay in All the right. future. Well, how about we get started here? I'll read my little uh, introduction. Let's. Here. Do you have a summary? Do you I, have I a, do have a summary. A plot summary? Okay. I do. A synopsis? I do. A little, and of course, I like to keep it concise. Yeah. In this sci-fi film noir, 
a grizzled detective is recruited to hunt down and destroy several illegal androids or replicants who have returned to Earth in an effort to extend their lives. Yeah, that's what happens. That's pretty much it right there. It is. And and uh, much atmosphere ensues. <laughs> right, lots of horizontal lighting. Yeah. Directed by Ridley Scott. You said it was vertical lighting. It's horizontal. It vert- it's horizontal lighting? Yeah. Okay, I'm right, sorry. Right, because it's coming across okay. through the windows. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> uh, screenplay by Hampton uh, Fancher and David Webb Peoples. Loosely based on the 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? by Philip K. Dick, which is a novel that you have read. Yeah, a long time ago. I remember that summer. I think we yeah. were like at the beach. That's my kind of beach read. Yeah, that's about right. That's probably that in Fight Club. I'm probably reading some Stephen King in your reading, you know, <laughs> Philip K. Dick. Well, whatever. You're cooler than me. Yeah, sure. Starring Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, Rutger Hauer as Roy Beatty, or is it Batty? I suppose it's Batty. I think it is Batty. Uh, Sean Young as Rachel, Edward James Olmos as Gaff, M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant. Mm-hmm. The great Daryl Hannah as Pris, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian, or as you so eloquently put it, Larry and his brother. Or yeah, well, yes, Larry from, uh, from the New, uh, New Heart. Show, Newhart, right, sure. right. And, but he had two brothers. On Larry, yeah, Daryl, and, Daryl, and Daryl. His right? other brother, Daryl. Uh, Brian James as Leon Kowalski, and Joe Turkle as Doctor Eldon Tyrell. Wow. And as we mentioned, he uh, appeared as Lloyd the bartender in The Shining. In The Shining. Uh, Joanna Cassidy as Zora, James Hong as Cannibal Chu, and Morgan Paul as Holden. Holden. Which is where it all begins. Did you say Cannibal Chu? Hannibal Chu. Hannibal Chu. Did I say Cannibal? I don't know. All right. Well, I meant to say Hannibal. Is he the I guy? Yes. Okay. He is. is. Very good. Music by New Age composer Vangelis. Yeah. It was nominated for two Oscar uh, nominations. It had two Oscar no nominations. Kidding. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if you can guess which categories. Well, uh, art design, art direction, special is one. effects, and visual effects. Hey, very good, very good. Uh, it was made for thirty million dollars, and it made forty-one million. A little profit. A little profit. <laughs> Not much. A little bit. At yeah. the time of its release, critics and audience members were somewhat divided in their praise I'm and sure criticism of the film. But today, it's widely seen as one of the greatest science fiction films of all time due to its complex themes and visual effects. Yeah. Several of the films, and we already talked about this, but several of the films exist, most notably the theatrical cut, theatrical cut the director's cut in 1992, which was closer to Ridley Scott's vision, and the final cut in 2007, which Scott oversaw and says is the definitive version of the movie, as it is the only version where you had complete creative control. Yeah. Uh, I believe they wrestled control from him right about the time when uh, he was finishing principal. I think he finished principal filming at that point. He got the last couple scenes in, and then they uh, wrestled control away from him. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. So. All right. You look concerned good. there because my I did. screen went, hey, your screen went my blank. Screensaver. Technology. Ah, yes. Um, the film also spawned a sequel. Well, if you didn't have a 54-inch screen in front of us, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I have like an 8-inch screen on my laptop. You've got this monster here. Anyway, at the time, at yes, the, yes. when principal photography finished. Uh, yeah, that's when they wrestled creative control away yeah. from him. But he, he had an opportunity to revisit it. They, they took it from him? Yeah. Like a Zack Snyder type situation. Exactly. Exactly. By like he finished golly. like the day of principal. They, like he found out about it. They kind of rushed through the last few scenes and they said, you're off the project. Is this Warner Brothers? 
I don't know. I don't know either. No, we no. were talking about that because uh, one of the title cards is the, well, I don't know if you call it a title card, but it's the production company was the Green Tree right. that scans across. It's the only movie that has that green tree thing. And we were saying, I, I remembered it as green. It looked gray on my side. <laughs> it looked gray, but it, that was might have been just the VHS. But anyway, uh, it, it didn't say anything about Warner Brothers, but maybe they're maybe they're notorious for, for taking these things from it artists. Could be. And, it seems yeah. to be a theme, right? And then they come back later and say, oops, our bad. Let's do a director's cut. Yeah. Oh, we didn't get that right. Let's yeah. do a final cut. Let's do the final, final. <laughs> Maybe we can get people to buy every single version. Like, and people like, like us. Yeah. <laughs> the film also spawned a sequel, 2017's Blade Runner 2049, which is a film that we will address yeah. next week. Yeah. Um, let's, um, I don't know. Let's, let's just start from here. What did you think after your umpteenth viewing here? It's it is one of those weird things where you've seen it so many times. I'm quoting lines it's as they're coming up, and I'm reminding myself that that's really annoying. And I try to keep myself from quoting the lines. No, but, but it's fun because we this isn't a movie we've seen for the first or second time. Right. So we can. You it's know, one that we've we're, seen. We're good so to have a little bit times. of fun during the viewing. Um, this movie holds up. It really holds up. I mean, uh, some of the technology in the movie. You know, because it takes place in 2019? Yes, it takes place in November of 2019, which is interesting because this was the first time I think I watched it where that was in the past. Gotcha. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Correct, yeah. So, um, especially with that in my... You know, some of the some of the technology, uh, they didn't get quite right. Um, you, you know, it's like, like we were talking about, some of it's a little further ahead, some of it's a little behind. We don't have the flying cars. Nope, you no know, spinners. We don't have the spinners. We are not, uh, like the, the wealthy among us are not living on other planets, as far as we know. Right. They might be. Elon Musk might be, you know, uh, broadcasting all of his stuff from Mars as for as, for as much as we know anyway. Right, right. Um, and, and then... You know, all of their screens are little uh, tube screens. You know what I mean on everything. So some of it's no LCD technology. <laughs> right. Flying cars, but no LCD yeah, technology. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of cool to watch it in that context. But they got a lot right, like like voice command technology. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Kind of a yeah. Siri thing where he's telling the um, the I guess Photoshop Photoshop type program yeah. where you could zoom in. And look at different parts of the photograph. But as you mentioned, it's almost a three-dimensional yeah. experience where yep. you can look at a photograph. So kind of cool. Um, it was, uh, like I say, it holds up. It holds up. I mean, this this uh, this movie from, and Ridley Scott is a design guy. He's an artist, yes. you know. So, I mean, from that standpoint, um, it still feels futuristic, mm-hmm. you know. So they could just slap a, a two on on front of that 2019 2029 and and just keep pushing the date forward and it would still feel i feel like futuristic you yeah know? i agree and then i think it's difficult at the time and by the way we maybe didn't establish it was released in 1982 82 82 the very first time so 2019 might as well have been just i mean yeah i couldn't even comprehend being alive then or what yeah. we'd be doing so um, yeah, it, and I suppose it's like oh, I think we've already passed the Back to the Future date as well. Yeah, so we're getting to that point where all these futuristic movies and the are Mad Max. I think Mad Max. Mad Max we've already yeah. passed that too, right? From what I understand, so we're living past. All we are. These yeah, dates. we survived. <laughs> Yay! The dystopian nightmare. So survived long enough to live in it. <laughs> 
So, so like as I mentioned, some critics, many people, many yeah. people, this is will say that this is one of the greatest science fiction films of all time. Do you agree with that? I do, absolutely. 100% I agree with that. <laughs> Would you like to <laughs> expound upon that? I don't know. Um, uh, again, as far as the science goes, probably not in terms of just predicting, you know, factually what will happen. But in terms of uh, just, I don't know, capturing the spirit of science fiction, um, yes, I, it just it just holds up, and and um, I don't know if it will in the future, you know. But uh, it's a slow movie. Well, yeah, that's for sure. That's it's kind of one of the weird things about science fiction, though, especially from the seventies and eighties. A lot of science fiction from the 70s and 80s kind of predicted the future to be very, very quiet and very slow. And everybody's very trying to keep things kind of down, you know, down low key. Right, right. Low key. <clears throat> everybody's on uh, whatever drug. I don't know what it would <laughs> so, be. Soma? Is that what it is? From uh, yeah, Soma. New World? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everyone's on Soma. Everybody's on Soma, just kind of keeping it cool, um, which is probably true, you know. So uh, I I do think it is one of the great science fiction masterpieces in film. Well, you know we've talked about CGI versus practical effects before, of course, yeah. and this is you know pre CGI uh, models right are used for for the set pieces and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of and of course there have been movies where they've used models and they've looked like models before, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen early CGI that looks awful, um, but here's an example where having a design guy like Ridley Scott who took the time to make these miniatures look real. Now, it took a lot of smoke, <laughs> a yeah. lot of lighting effects, and a lot of double exposure, triple exposure. A lot of rain. But rain, but he did not give up until he got that look he was looking for. Yeah. You know, that's, a, that's the difference, right? I suppose you have directors and filmmakers that are kind of in it. Not that they don't all start as artists, but you get to a point where it's like, okay, I'm making a buck. I'm putting in my time yeah. here, and let's move on. But for Ridley Scott, no, this was, you know, this is a vision. This is truly an art form for him. Yeah. Um, and he did not want to settle. In fact, he, um, I guess there's a little bit of a difference between the way they make films in Britain and in America. Yeah. And this was his first American film. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, I guess the, the, the filmmaker actually does a lot of what the DP would be, the director of photography, where he would he gets in behind the camera and actually starts calling camera angles and is really hands-on and involved. Well, I guess in America, the director's kind of more of a, you know, to the side, telling the DP what to do or what mm-hmm. he kind of has the vision of, but really doesn't take creative control of the camera. And so there was a little bit of a power struggle in this yeah. movie where he tried to take over the reins and people are like, dude, I don't know what you do in England. Right. <laughs> we don't do it this way here in America. That was America. So there was a little bit of a, with a British director and an American crew, a little bit of a, a power struggle, but, uh, but it worked. When you listen to Ridley Scott's uh, like audio commentaries and things, and you listen to him talk about his work, when when he talks about his own work, um, you don't you don't get the sense of uh, this is a guy who doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't really know what it, he has a vision. He knows how to see that vision through, and um, you know, I nothing in his movies uh, happens by accident, right? Some of his movies haven't been great. Many of them have been friggin' brilliant. Sure. You know, I mean, Alien is just... Talk about two of, you know, two science fiction masterpieces, Alien and Blade Runner, coming from the same director. Um, 
lightning striking twice. Oh, yeah. You know? But it's because he has his specific vision and he knows what needs to be done to see it through. So. Well, yeah, because, you, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes, most of the time, I would imagine, you have the story and the art direction is built around the story. But with really Scott, a lot of times it's like, hey, I want it to look this way and we can justify it later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. why do we have these horizontal light beams? Well, yep. you know, because we have taller buildings and flying cars there. But he really just wanted the light coming through. Yep. You know, why do we have, you know, the, the, the flames, the... You know, I think he just wanted to set that mood, yeah. that aesthetic, you know, yeah. at the very beginning. So. Well, and I was talking about the the scene at the end where they're running along the rooftops and they have these fans spinning and things. There's no reason for those fans. No. There's nothing. There's they're, like they're not. It's not a ventilation system. There's no reason. It looks good. It looks good. And he right. knew that. Right. And uh, so uh, he knew what would look good on film, but it also worked for the story. It all came together. And uh, the people who, in 1982, recognized this as a, you know, for what it is, a brilliant work of science fiction, were right. Yeah. Yeah, and to me, what makes great science fiction, whether it be in literature or in screen, you know, it's got to be more than just looking pretty, looking futuristic. You know, it has to have those elements of, and I'm really boiling this down to the most simplistic elements, but... Of, uh, of somewhat of a glimpse into our future in a, mm-hmm. in a warning sort of way, saying, hey, like, this is your future if you're not careful. Themes. And these are the themes. And yeah. there are so many complex, interweaved themes, um, not just technological and environmental themes, but philosophical themes. Yeah. So much philosophy here. Mm-hmm. Blatant philosophy. I mean, even Pris, um, you know, quotes uh, Descartes. What yeah. I think, therefore, I am. So... You know, when you start layering all these different elements that make us human, right? And what they say, like, like we're human because we live and breathe, but we're really human because of the humanities and the time we take to write poetry and to think about our own lives and our own existence, which flows right into the theme of this. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? I mean, here in this particular world, they have created, you know, basically androids, or they call them replicants, who are, you know, robots so lifelike. To the point where I guess like the only way you can tell like like, the, like even their bones, mm-hmm. if you look in a microscope you can see a serial number, but otherwise there's no way to tell. Which is why they have these special tests that our protagonists use to, to, to detect whether or not you know you're a replicant. And you know, let's just well you know what let's skip to. I want to talk about first of all before we get to that since we were talking about kind of art direction is the metaphoric imagery. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and, and it's the little bit, it's the little touches that make this a great movie, right? And it always is, right? It's the little gravy yeah. that's sprinkled out. Yep. So let's start talking about like the origami that Gaff places. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the, 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 the chicken at the beginning, which is just a great way of, of saying you're yellow because you're not going to take this job. You're afraid. Okay. At least that's how I've always seen it. Sure. Was this his way? Because that's the point when Deckard is saying, I have, you know, I'm retired. I'm no longer a Blade Runner. I want nothing to do with this. He's walking out of the office and Gaff puts down the little chicken saying, what are you? Yeah. Afraid? Yeah. You know? Um, And then, of course, the, the unicorn. And, Guys, if you haven't watched this movie, right, we're going to have to spoil stuff the from unicorn. other cuts. So, yeah. um, in the final cut, there's a dream that Deckard has of a unicorn. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the very end, I guess, of all the versions, um, there is a unicorn origami outside of Deckard's apartment. Yeah. But in the final cut, it's a way of kind of, and we're going to talk about it later, the big debate of whether uh, Deckard is a replicant or not. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of Ridley Scott's way of saying, hey, um, he is because we've implanted 
this dream of the unicorn. Yeah. And Gaff is clearly, you know, aware of this. Right. I mean, there wouldn't be any other way right. of knowing that he had a unicorn dream, you know, I mean, unless you were somehow. Well, in the same way, Deckard wouldn't have known the memories that, uh, that Rachel. Yeah. 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 Eyes. Okay. Eyes. This is not the biggest visual metaphor. Yes. Throughout this. And so a few examples, right? That the film begins with a close up of Holden's eyeball. We have uh, the poetic idea that windows are the eyes of the soul. Replicants, eyes glow. Eyes are the windows of the soul. What did I say? Windows are the eyes of the soul. Holy shit. <laughs> eyes are the windows of the soul. Um, the replicants' eyes glow. Yeah. Uh, the owl, kind of known for its large and eyes. And the replicants are always going for your eyeballs. Going for it's the so eyeballs. Sens- that's such a sensitive area. What does Chew design? Uh, what the, what is what chew, now? Chew. What who? What does he design? Oh yeah, the eyeball he specifically. And then you have like and um, Leon's like putting the eyeballs on his shoulder. That's so creepy. <laughs> Stop is. that, Leon. It is. Yeah. And uh, and Ridley Scott said at one point, obviously this wasn't an accident. He believes that like eyes are. He puts it two way mirrors, right? And that oh. they take in information. Yeah. But then they also reveal so much about us. Yeah. That's too bad because my eyes, I feel like, don't reveal accurate information about me. That's been a, a lifelong struggle of mine. People read the wrong things in my eyes and they want to kick my ass sometimes just because of the way my eyes look. But it's really not my fault. You should wear sunglasses. I should. Boy. Well, I try to, actually, <laughs> constantly. But, uh, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, the, the eyes are the, the, the windows to the soul. Right. That's what they say. Right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. That, yeah, the eyes. Even Tyrell's constant glasses. Constant motif, yeah. Right? Freaky. And, and again, you can get to the point where you just get ridiculous in, in taking this metaphor further and further. But I, my next part wants to go the fact that Tyrell had poor eyesight. Yeah. Because he had to have these really thick glasses. And his poor eyesight or his poor vision mm-hmm. led to the fact that he's created these androids that have become self-aware. Yeah. Who now experience emotion. And of course, want to know why they were designed, and they want to know why they can't live long. Yeah, and that's so much a big part of science fiction. You know, talking about this is a science fiction classic. The idea that the technology that we create, we lose control of. Right. You know, um, the technology that we re- come to rely on because it is um, expedient and because it makes someone maybe wealthy or whatever and so let's let's move this along um is technology that can maybe become our undoing right. you know in terms of going into even global warming and issues like that um that's so much a big part of science fiction so you know as we're moving and we do continue to move further and further into artificial intelligence you know we talking about the things that we talk to and that can play our playlists for us and things um, and supposedly begin to know us better than we know ourselves, um, maybe we should just like pump the brakes a little bit. Right. And but we cons- never do. Yeah, we never do. Yeah. <laughs> we just don't learn. No, no, we don't. Well, you remember the movie with Joaquin Phoenix? Um, was it a Spike Jones film? Hurt, right, yeah. right. Um, I, I'm not kidding you. I just got an advertisement on my phone, which is another device that's holding us captive, yeah. of course, right? Um, for a AI friend app. And you download this app and this friend, I didn't download it, but yeah. apparently it's this like cartoon that you begin to talk to and it remembers things and yeah. asks you about your day and you That's develop okay. your... <laughs> right. 
that's not okay. That's not that's not good. Right. That's not good. Right. I I've still in because I have all of the voice command stuff, but I refuse to give it anything resembling a human name because I don't want to humanize it. Right, you know? right, right. Um, but what happens when it begins to be able to process thoughts and information and things and think for itself and then you know develops its own personality? Um, is all that going to come along before we even know it? You know, so I don't know. Possibly. You say that happens. It's too late. Yeah. It um, does in movies anyway. Literally, you know? yeah. Um, then the last bit of kind of, you know, metaphoric imagery I, I wrote down was the uh, the religious symbolism, of course. It's a little bit over the top at times. I'm not picking up on that. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, when at the very end of, of Roy's uh, lifespan, right? Yeah. His muscles begin to freeze up and not work correctly. And so yeah. he, he takes a, a nail and he puts it into his hand to uh-huh. kind of give himself a little more mobility in his fingers. Right. And it, it's just coincidental that when he happens to pull Deckard from falling to the depths of in his death, yeah, saves, saves him. Deckard's life, uh, the same hand that, that, that pulls him up it has the nail sticking out of his That's hand. That's right. So. And, then, and then he oh. dies with a white dove. Now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah. Two on the nose. But that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, it's pretty it, cool. And I, and I read a little. But I'm not going to take credit for this next part of it because I read about this. But the idea of fallen angels, right? Um, I think one of Roy's first bits of dialogue um, when he's speaking with who is he speaking with? Um, I forget now exactly. But when he's talking, he, he quotes some older poetry about the yeah. angels. But I guess he kind of purposely misquotes it. It's, it's about the angels ascending to heaven. He talks about the angels coming down. Yeah. And of course, these replicants are coming from off-world colonies back to meet their maker on yeah. Earth, right? And so it's this fallen angel imagery. And so somebody I read about talked about um, Zora when she's shot through the multiple planes of glass and she's wearing like this clear jacket of some sort. Yeah. And it's almost like angel wings. And when she falls, the two bullet wounds are in each shoulder blade, like detached wings. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe the guy was... Smoking a little too much. Well, I mean, I just, I don't know. Um, Some of that is you don't know what they intended, you know, when they made the the thing. Right. But some of that is also subconscious. Right. Sure. And so much of what we react to in movies or in any work of art is subconscious and is is, kind of hardwired into us. So... Even from the the maker's perspective, right. maybe they weren't even aware of what they were doing. So, and that's our classic English teacher answer when the kid says, "Did they mean to <laughs> shut up? <laughs> Did they mean to put that in there?" Vocab quiz tomorrow. <laughs> now, I, I have a little more of a history with this film because by the time I got to high school, um, yeah. my senior year, I took a, a humanities course. Yes, which was kind of cool because we got on a bus and we got to go down to the Canton Art Museum. Okay, and that's where we held class. Of course, there were a few kids that just used it as an excuse to skip and go to Wendy's, but uh, uh, the man... Which is literally 20 feet away from the Canton <laughs> right, Art Museum. I know. So. Very, cl- um, very clever of them. Right, right. Yeah. Um, our instructor was was a professor who had, who had um, you know, worked at several universities in the area. In Stark County, we have, we have several. And, you know, what I loved about him was he, he didn't care. If you wanted to go to Wendy's, yeah. fine. That was a couple less kids that he right. had to deal with in yeah. class. And he was great because, of course, we learned all sorts of, you know, ancient art and the lost wax process and classical music. But he was also very attuned to a lot of modern film and music and so forth. And so when he said, hey, we're going to watch Blade Runner next week. Mm. And I remember going, (laughs) what is this class? Like, that's that VHS that I rented, you know, several years earlier. And um, 
it was one it, it was one of those defining moments where he kind of opened my eyes to like what film could be in terms of like like literature like looking into a movie and seeing things that my english teachers would tell me about mm-hmm. now i don't know if this is just his you know maybe going a little too far down the rabbit hole or not but i just i know my mind was blown when he said uh you know what's what's uh what's the name of the first replicant we see you know, that's leon right well who what explorers looking for the fountain of youth uh, Ponce de Leon, Leon, Leon. Yeah, He's looking cool. for the fountain of youth. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. And I remember he said, like, Rachel sounds like racial. And the fact that this whole racial idea between replicants and humans, and she didn't want to be a replicant because they were seen as subhuman. Okay. And so Deckard sounds yeah. like Descartes, which is the philosopher, I think, therefore I am. This whole idea of what's your identity. So, again, whether or not that was a self-conscious decision or if the uh, and again, I don't know with the Philip K. Dick novel if, if some of those names were the same or, th- or they were changed. But. Right. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah it, I always think about that, too, in the process of developing a film, because there's so much that goes into that, just the technical aspects of it. Do they think about all those little detail things? And maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe right. it's like a 24-hour job, you know, yeah. developing a film. We, we developed this film in eight months. And uh, it was 24 hours a day for eight months. So everybody was hanging around in one room, and we got like every little detail figured out. Maybe Probably so. Probably a combination of both. I don't know. But it's no different like Death of a Salesman, Willie Loman, Loman. I mean, yeah. there's that idea of that names can mean something. Sure. So, so, you know, that's why this movie's special to me, too, because it really did. It was kind of a little transitory. I mean, after that class, let's just say that I looked at, at film in a different way. Yeah. Maybe a little bit too obsessively sometimes, looking for things that weren't really there. Yeah. But it was just, uh, it, was a, it was a cool way to, to see art, you know, in a yeah. modern medium. I think that for me, the this film, um, you know, the first time seeing it and then seeing it uh, after that, it was all me. You know, it was kind of like trying to piece together what makes this good, what makes it different. Um. I do think, you know, it's funny watching it this time, even though we're watching it in that decaying technology, (laughs) um, you're reminded of uh, like so many other movies that were made, science fiction movies that were made. And you watched at the time that didn't have that same kind of quality. This was a this was a movie that had a lot of money behind it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, it was made to look good for the time that it was made. But essentially, it has the same kind of themes and it has the same qualities as the, as the low budget stuff that was made at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of interesting to kind of look at it from that perspective and say this is the Cadillac of the B movie. Yeah, no, fiction. I can see that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, there are some yeah horribly looking movies that you know I can't think of an example of yeah. that I know that we've watched before and talked about. I mean, when you're talking about dystopias, we, you know, we watched A Boy and His Dog. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, <laughs> low-budget dystopias. Right. right. Um, trying to kind of wrestle with the same themes. And and uh, it, it's I think it's just really cool that a director like Ridley Scott was somehow able to convince this studio to kind of... It, was it 20th Century Fox? Anyway, convince this we studio. Probably look, we've asked our, <laughs> yeah. this question several times now. Convince this studio um, to, you know, to kind of like go with it mm-hmm. and um, and see his vision through. And and what you end up with is a classic. Yeah. So. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about then not just visual themes, but but actual themes. So 
I wrote down a few, and you can add whatever you think I missed. But okay. um, creation and God, right, is a huge theme here, right? So Tyrell, uh, you know, creates these replicants. So he's like their God, yeah. right? And um, he's pursued now by these that come back to Earth. And I guess the mythology is they... I guess the replicants are illegal on Earth, right? They're only allowed in the off-world colonies. Yeah. And so the fact that they're even on Earth is, is bad, right? But they've, they've come to this forbidden place that they're not supposed to come. And they've come to meet their maker, literally, and looking for a chance of <clears throat> eternal life. Yeah. And, of course, the maker has put into them a limited lifespan. Yeah. How is that any different than, than the human experience? You know what I right, mean? Right, right, right. You have a limited lifespan. You have uh, whatever. It depends on when you're born, right. frankly. If you're born right. in the 1800s, you have like 40 to 60 years, right. you know. Uh, if you're born in the you know uh, mid to late 1900s, you have 60 to 80, maybe 90, 100 if you're lucky, if years, you're lucky, yeah. you know. So how is how is four years any different than forty years right, or right. eighty years? It's all arbitrary. Yeah, right. yeah. But the idea that they actually got to you know meet quote God right. and then they destroy God, and that's the whole idea of you know and you've heard this a million times in science fiction. You know, man creates machine. You know, we're the god of the machine. The machine becomes self aware. Terminator, right? Kills yeah. kills their own god and becomes just the cyclical thing. So yeah. Or in Jurassic Park, woman inherits the earth. <laughs> They somehow made that work easily. I don't know. And Um, then life. uh, It was my second one, which kind of goes along with creation, of course. But um, and this is a question we can kind of chew on for a little bit. Uh, (laughs) Life. We already kind of of alluded to it. It's your life. At what point, right? Could AI consider being a life along the same value as human life? Right. Yeah. Is it? creative thinking because we already have AI now that can think creatively. In fact, we have AI now that's painting. Have you seen itself? Yeah. Which are really creepy. Portraits of itself win chess matches and things. Yes. And chess match was probably the first step because you're able to load all these different possibilities. Mathematical. But to then to be creative beyond that. Right. Um, self-aware. Is it self-awareness? Is the point? Like, like what separates... At what point? Yeah. Right. What separates yeah. us from animals? People will tell you, well, we're self-aware. Yeah. Animals are not. Um, and then in a way, this kind of mirrors, the, dare I say, the historical slavery issue in the sense that these replicants were created to be slave labor in the off colony. Right. And they've gotten to a point where they're like, hey, you know, we're tired of being your slave labor. Yeah. We deserve to be human like you and with equal rights. That, and that comes down to the definition of human. Right. Right. The definition of, of uh, self-aware life, you know. Um yeah, uh, so they uh, for generations, I suppose generations, I don't know, they've been trying to explain how the human brain operates, and it's a chemical thing, right? It's an electrical thing. It's a physiological thing, you know, and they're always trying to explain that, and it's de- developmental, you know, in terms of where you are in life, how you think about things and react to things. So if really all we are is just a, I don't know, just a kind of like bundle of uh chemical and and electrical and physiological reactions then how are we any different you know to a computer we're just machines right um is there something different is there a spark that's different i think that's a little above our pay grade well but you're right many 
many, if not most, religious traditions, right, believe yeah. in some sort of soul, which is the meeting of the spirit combined with the physical entity. Yeah. So in that case, you would say that the AI or the um, replicants are not human because they don't possess that soul. But again, if, if you go with a more pragmatic approach that we're just a bunch of chemicals, then yeah, you have a discussion there. But if our, if our issue is with AI and with computers is that, well, humans created it and, and we know how all the pathways work and everything, well, I'm sorry, the excuse of God created us, God knows how all the pathways work and everything, so right. what's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, I mean, we're treading into like, you know, college drinking, you know, yeah. discussions, you know, you can go on and on about some of these philosophical things yeah, that have been yeah, talked yeah. about to death. But, right. but these were, this is the movie, you know, that, that, that brings up so many of these elements. And the last one I put down was environmentalism. This one's pretty on the nose too, right? This post-apocalyptic view of, of maybe climate unchecked by the effects of modern technology. The fact that it takes place in LA, I, I've never lived in LA, actually I haven't visited LA yet, but from what I understand, it, it doesn't rain very often there. Right. Yeah, it rains a few days out of the year. And right. If it rains right, right, hard, right, right, like right. Yeah. you know, cars are going off the side of the road. And here, I don't think there's a, a single exterior scene in this movie in L.A. where it's not constantly raining. Yeah. So this idea of you know climate change and so forth. I don't know if it was did Ridley Scott ever address that and say that this is part of what you know the future holds for us, or I don't know. I just think it's one of those that it's easy to package. <laughs> yeah, because it gives it atmosphere. You know, it's funny people. Like so many things, people think <laughs> that the these political issues were invented in 2007, right? Right. right. Uh, they were not. They were not. They were. They they've been discussed and and debated and wrestled with for generations. And uh, the environmental issue is is the same. Um, it kind of goes along with. It's interesting how the the weather mirrors the existential crisis that the humans are experiencing, you know? I mean, even like the police are clearly the ones with the power in this story. Mm -hmm. They have the power over Rick Deckard, you know, and everything. But they're not happy people. (laughs) They're not living, you know, charmed lives. Um, It's just like the future according to this movie and and many science fiction movies like it is just full of existential crisis just full of uh, you know questioning why we're even here well every time i watch a movie no matter how many times i've seen it i I find something new right to, to think about this time it was when pris is talking to sebastian and she basically says so why are you still here on earth yeah why aren't you off on one of the colonies? In other words, it's it, it's strange to her that a man his age is still hanging out on Earth. Yeah, which got me got me to think. Then, well, why is Deckard here? Why are all these humans here? Right? Is there something that keeps Deckard here? Why wouldn't he go to one of the off colonies? Mm-hmm. Colonies, if it's such a unusual thing to stick around. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, obviously, there's there's a lot of socioeconomic dynamics right. here. You know, it talks about commerce is our goal is the uh, is like one of the taglines of the Tyrell Corporation. You know, um, so obviously that's also a big part of what's going on. And and the people who are left on Earth are obviously people who are not worthy right. of going to the others these other places. So. You know, they? Th- speaking of commercial, you know there's a, a product placement curse on, from this movie. Well, and the, 
Pan Am, I think, yeah. is one of them, right? Right. Is is it? I, well, I, I just I, well TDK I know is one. TDK no longer Atari around. Atari yeah <laughs> no longer around. Uh, now Coke the the best There's you quite come a up bit with, Coca Cola the best you can come up with is New Coke came out shortly yeah. after. <laughs> Budweiser is in this movie a is lot. It? Yeah, okay. Budweiser's in there a lot. But kind of like the Poltergeist curse, right? Not everyone yeah. died, but, but a few significant actors died. Right, and that's the idea. There are a lot of um, product placement companies that did not last long after this particular movie. Yeah. All right, well, let's then get to the kind of the, the, the big issue the big that issue. people like to debate, and that, of yes. course, is Deckard a human or a replicant. Right. And I'll just say right off the bat, uh, this is something that the creative team on this movie does not agree with. Okay. So you have certain actors who say one way, you have certain crew members, I mean, artistic crew members, like art direction and script writers, and, of course, Ridley Scott, who have a different view. And so I did not ask you this before. You didn't ask me this. No. Or while we're watching, but but what is your view? Is Rick a replicant? It sure seems like he is to me. Okay. He has a piano full of these these old archaic pictures of uh, people, photographs of people, um, you know, from from generations he would have never known. That seems very important to him. That seems like something that's very important to all replicants is their history. Where do they come from and everything? Um, he has a piano that features prominently in his apartment. And um, the one thing I noticed this time is the sheet music on that piano is extremely intricate. Yes. If he can play that sheet music, I'm really impressed. And and that's probably not something that he would be able to play, you know, as just being like a detective for a police department or something. He would have to be like, a you know, uber trained well, Rachel Concert plays the piano, pianist. if I'm not mistaken, when right, he's sleeping. Yeah, she so does. she's had that implanted. Yeah, but her stuff is just like plunking around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you yeah. look at his sheet music, it's like rock and roll, you know. Is it possible, though, that like the pictures, that the piano and it's the sheet music like was a hand-me-down that just reminds you of his ancestry? Yeah, it is. But um, why is the, you know, ans- and boy, getting into the question of why is ancestry so important <laughs> to some people and not as important to other people that's getting into the whole human thing which is what makes it uh, interesting that it's um, part of this movie the fact that it's so important to him makes me think that yeah he probably is a replicant yeah now i'm just going to play devil's advocate right and the fact that he seems to have a sixth sense about who is replicants and who is he seems to be like this super it makes um, him a good blade, blade runner. runner yeah right, right. To play devil's advocate on that point, though, I, um, I think what Rachel had a few pictures, at least that we know, she had a few photographs. Yeah. Um, he had a lot of photographs going back many, many generations, mm-hmm. some of them like going back to the beginning of photography, um, lots of family heirlooms. So if he is a replicant, then somebody took a special, special time, special time. to really build a past for true. this guy. True, true. Yeah, and maybe because they knew that he would question. I don't know. Well, and it is a human thing to be to feel want to feel connected to your past and want to feel a sense of you know history and to feel a sense that you matter in the great timeline of humanity. Sure. So it, even as just a human, he would be collecting pictures at the same time, especially at this particular time in human history when there is so much existential crisis. Why am I here? Maybe it would make sense that a guy living in Los Angeles, you know, in this kind of like hellscape has all the stuff surrounding him in his apartment. So for me, well well said for me, it happened when I turned 40. I I didn't care. They never gave two thoughts about my great, great, great grandfather before the age of 40. And then all of a sudden I'm like, huh, 
I wonder, you know, yeah. it is something I think as you get older, maybe you start to care about more. You want to matter in the great yeah. timeline. Yeah. Like, yeah. Where am I gonna stand? Blood and soil. Well, I will say this. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's wrong. No, 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 no. Not blood and soil. I'm kidding. I'm only saying that in an ironic way of politic, political context. Okay. I'm sorry. In the novel, uh, Philip K. Dick, who, by the way, did not get to see the finished film, yeah. but was able to see a rough cut of the movie. Was he really? And, uh, and you know, during the different drafts and during the development phase, there were times when he was really beginning to regret uh, yeah, selling the rights I'm to the sure. book. I'm sure. But by the time he saw the rough cut, he was very happy with oh, it. Oh, good. He was extremely happy with Harrison Ford's um, portrayal of the character. In fact, he said, that's, that's Deckard come to yeah. life. Like, so that's good. It's yeah. always good when the original artist is yep. happy with it. Um, according to the novel, Deckard is clearly human. Okay. Okay. Clearly human. All right. Uh, screenwriter Hampton uh, Fancher says that he wrote, specifically wrote Deckard as human. Yeah. But he but. wanted the issue to be ambiguous. Okay. So he threw things in there to make us wonder. Yeah. Harrison Ford and Rutger Hauer believe that he is human, and they think that's important because it's a, a contrast with the replicant. If you don't have a human to identify with as the viewer, mm-hmm. And of course, as we know, right, you need to have those contrasts in literature or film to pull things out. You have to have the human to, as a foil to these replicants. Yeah. Right? And that whole issue of empathy, like, does Deckard not care about these? Does he begin to care when he starts to fall for Rachel? Empathy is a big part of the Voight-Comp test, you know. It's right. like that's that's the whole thing. That's the key. That's the crux. That seems to be the human kind of like element is uh, can you experience empathy? And he has empathy for Rachel, clearly. Yeah. But so did Roy for Pris. Yes, he definitely did. And so they learn empathy. Yeah. So you're, So I guess you're meant to think that this artificial intelligence can become it clearly it's evolved human. to have empathy yes. yeah whether or not that settles the whole debate with with Deckard or not but he clearly right it could go but that's why they felt it was important at least had um, Howard and, and Ford believed that he should be human yeah. in fact I guess from the time from 1982 to present day so apparently Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott get together once in a while and have sure. a few cold ones I wish I could be there they still argue about this they still yeah. like to argue about whether Deckard is human or a replicant. So Harrison Ford is on the human side. Correct. Ridley Scott is on. Well, the we're getting to Ridley Scott here. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Which I've already kind of ruined sure. because I told you they argued about you it. But ruined I'm getting there. It. I'm getting there. All right. Um, several creative contributors to the film, all right, believe that uh, that Deckard is clearly a replicant. But Ridley Scott, right, finally weighed in okay. after the release of the final cut. So in 2000. Seven. It's the definitive word. Right. He's doing the press circuit for the release of his final cut. And he clearly said that, yes, he intended from the very beginning. And he believes that uh, Deckard is a replicant. Oh. Much to the disappointment of, of Ford and, yeah. and, and uh, Rutger Hauer and others. Um, Scott points to Deckard's unicorn dream, as I mentioned earlier, and Gaff's placing of the unicorn origami for Deckard to find, suggesting that that dream had been implanted. And that was kind of Ridley Scott's final say on the matter, saying, here, guys, yes, he is a replicant. But if Ridley Scott hadn't made Legend, would that even be a thing? (laughs) Like, would that even be... Well, and that's an allusion to the fact that that was leftover footage. The unicorn footage of the dream was leftover from the movie Legend. But the origami of the unicorn was... It was part of the original. Part of the original. Yeah. And it's that idea of what is the unicorn symbolize, right? A uniqueness. Mm-hmm. So if Deckard really is a replicant, he's a replicant that's much unique to he's compare a unicorn. To, to the other replicants. Like yeah. he doesn't have a lifespan, perhaps. Yeah. 
uh, he, you know, whatever is programmed to, yeah. I mean, you could see a replicant being programmed to hunt another replicant. Right. It would be unique in that way. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean. Just as they make programs to hunt other programs, you know, like computer right. programs to hunt viruses. Virus control. Like right. That. Yeah. Very good. Um, uh, Rutger Hauer, by the way, as an aside, passed away. Uh, you know when he passed away? No, I don't. 2019, November. 2019, not November, July, but pretty, July. pretty darn close to 2019. That's, that's not that interesting. But no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were his last words like, uh, like tears and rain? No, no. Can I just say, he is fantastic. He is. He really is. Yes. I mean, he is friggin' fantastic. Right. You know, it's uh, because his character is is a villain. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, mm-hmm. he's so villainous. But a sympathetic villain. Really sympathetic. Yeah. And uh, part of it's the the writing, but a lot of it is Rutger Hauer mm-hmm. at the same time. So, And that's a testament to the actor. And, and, and again, we use this word a lot, artist, right? But he is an artist-actor. Yeah. And, and, and the, to the point where he took an active role in this, in, in this uh, movie, um, rewrote a lot of dialogue. In fact, mm-hmm. that last soliloquy before he dies yeah. was much longer. And I guess he went back to his hotel room that night and he was going through it and didn't feel it and basically just chopped a bunch of it, added that line with the mm-hmm. tears being lost in the rain, didn't tell Ridley Scott or anybody about it, and went ahead and shot it with the new dialogue and Ridley was just like, yeah, right yeah. there it is, right there, you know? Uh, the Dove, I think, was his idea. And there are different other uh, lines and, and moments in the, in the movie where he just went for it and I'm sure Ridley Scott didn't approve all of them, but he brought something to the character. He wasn't just a quote robot yeah <laughs> and do what the director told him to he actually brought something to the performance right a lot to the performance yeah and i thought because i'm i know that on set sean young and harrison ford did not get along correct uh harrison ford kind of didn't like sean young's approach she seemed a little immature i think she was i think she was a little green for this movie right i mean right. she was really young as an actress and hadn't been in a whole lot I think she's fantastic. I really yeah. think she's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if that's just because she is so experienced as or inexperienced as an actress that that kind of works for her character as a, you know, uh, basically android. Right. Um, or what. But I think she's really great. Yeah. Well, and, and we haven't, well, we can talk about this now. Um, the whole aesthetic of the film, of course, is film noir. Yeah. Right. And this idea of what, I guess, the 1940s would have been the prime, right, right uh, yeah. of this type of film. You know, very dark, right? It just literally means dark film. Um, hard-boiled detective type deal. And so her hairstyle, mm-hmm. right, her clothing is very 1940s mm-hmm. retro. Yeah, with a twist. Yeah. Yeah. Which is where that art direction comes in, that Ridley Scott touch. And they chose the Bradbury building in L.A., which has been used in a lot of films. But, again, it's perfect for this time period that they're kind of... Mm-hmm. Recreate, and I think they call it like neo noir now. Yeah. It's like the new sub yep. sub genre. Um, so then that leads us to the idea of the narration, right? Yeah. So the final cut and the director's cut have the voiceover, Harrison Ford's voiceover removed. Um, the whole idea was on test audiences watched this movie in 1982, and yeah. some of the audience had no clue what was they going on. They had no idea. No idea. No idea what was going on. And by this time, creative control had been wrestled away from Ridley Scott. So the powers that be at the studio, which we still don't know what studio, um, decided, well, hey, let's do a voiceover. And 
frankly, I think it was Guillermo de Toro said he, he wasn't opposed, and I agree. He, he kind of liked the voiceover aspect because it does fit that film noir style mm-hmm. where the detective is heard. Yeah. Now, whether lines like, they don't advertise for killers in the newspaper. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was. That's the problem I have. I like the voiceover as, as the idea. I don't yeah. like the fact that they literally had to explain to death yeah. every little aspect of the movie as if we're a bunch of idiots. Especially the last scene with... Right. Uh, yeah. Um. Yes. I... I remember the first time I saw it without the voiceover, it was felt different, felt weird. I wasn't sure about it. And now, n- understanding the story, sure. <laughs> the voiceover is just totally goofy, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's like, why is this here? Right. Uh, which makes you realize that the people who are doing it know it best. Let them, let them do their thing. Right. You know? Right. Um, if you're not going to get it, you're not going to get it. Right. And... Yeah. Well, there were two writers actually that worked on the text for the voiceover. I I guess one, the first one was actually pretty poetic and metaphor. I mean, it it, it kind of served both purposes. Like they gave you a little bit, they gave you some hints, but they yeah. didn't spell it out for you. Right. Um, and I guess that was the better of the text. A lot of people felt like that might have actually stayed in the versions to to follow. But then the studio came in again and hired someone else. They chose the spelled out to person. really like yeah. dumb it down as much as possible. Like I say, there's footage of uh, Harrison Ford speaking the lines and basically like reading the lines and saying, "Are you serious? You really want me to read <laughs> right, this? Right. Okay, I'll read it." And he tried to read it as emotionless as possible, uh, thinking that this won't make it into the movie. But it worked for the movie because his character is you know fried emotionally, right. and right. and uh, so it makes sense for the character. Um, unfortunately, looking back at it in hindsight, um, it feels goofy right. knowing what happens in the movie. It's hard to say, though, for, you know, what what would have worked better at the time, you know, so. Well, for my money, the final cut is clearly the best cut, but it was fun to kind of go back and visit. It was, it was a lot of visit fun. It. It's kind yeah. of like uh, you've heard a song so many times, it's good to hear the live version or the or the outtake. Yes. <laughs> you know. Get a different read on 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 the movie itself. Or there the were only a couple times when we were watching it where I was like, eh, "I kind of wish this was in high def." Well, <laughs> yeah. clearly, like this was. Yeah, if I hadn't seen it so many times in right. high def, scan lines, scan lines. There was this weird yellow, pink, yellow line, like right in the middle of the image, the entire movie. Not to mention the crackle that just incessantly the constant audio thing. <laughs> Although you did mention at some point the audio wasn't horrible. Yeah, uh, it was funny because back in 1982. VHS could capture some pretty decent fidelity. Yeah. I remember I had a Peter Gabriel um, music videos uh, and I had bought my first like stereo VCR like in the mid 80s. That was yes. huge. Yes. And I hooked it up to my receiver and even though the image like you said was on a little like you know 15 inch screen the sound was incredible. Yes. And, and that is true about VHS. It had incredible sounds mm-hmm. for the time. You right. know I, I, as a matter of fact I remember reading some things that said you know whatever sound concert films things whatever you can get on VHS that's the way to listen to it because it's the highest fidelity that you can get and whether or not that was true I don't know but makes sense because uh it that held up yeah you know sure did so and going back to Harrison Ford and going to, again back to actors who are artists Harrison Ford why can't he be in every movie right he's right. one of those guys um a couple of funny um asides so he had just finished Indiana Jones Raised the it was raised the last time, yeah. Right. And he was tired of wearing a hat. <laughs> yeah. And he saw this was kind of a film noir, film noir thing. Yeah. And he got a little ner- <laughs> got a little nervous 
Uh, so he talked to Ridley Scott, and that was like the first thing he negotiated. He's like, I'm not wearing a hat <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> and he funny. got his haircut kind of short to kind of yeah. make him look a little different than Han Solo and in Indiana Jones. Yeah. But I will Very say... Very different. Harrison Ford, for whatever reason, had that ability to not be typecast as Han mm-hmm. Solo. Um, or whereas, Indiana Jones. Or Indiana Jones. And then he comes back and does another science fiction movie, but... Other than other than when I mentioned during during the viewing this time, when he pulls the gun on Sean Young in the um, in the elevator, mm-hmm. it's kind of a Han Solo draw. Right. But other than that, he's clearly not Han Solo yeah. and, and, and at all. Yep. And then you have poor Mark Hamill, you know, who just I mean, he did a lot of great voiceover stuff for animation, um, but just never could escape being Luke Skywalker. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, he's Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Until the Last Jedi. Anyway, um, <laughs> see how long did it? Fifty-nine <laughs> minutes to get into Star Wars. Yes. Uh, well, not just Star Wars. Last Jedi. Anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Um, no, I mean, there's a reason why you know Harrison Ford is an icon. You know, so uh, even a movie like this, which I, we talked about the numbers, it made some money. It made yeah. It, it didn't made go crazy, million. right? Yeah. But it made you know it did decent um but certainly as a rated r science fiction movie which at the time science fiction was kind of seen as something for kids you know flash gordon star wars you know adventure sci-fi kids you know keep it fun keep it light and ridley scott just kept coming back with this rated r stuff Mm -hmm. you know um so it took a long time for a sequel to be made for this movie. It did. It did. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of sequel uh, screenplays that were written in the meantime. Um, never got picked up, of course. And then a lot of those were turned into novels. So I was kind of interested. I have the books, yeah. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yes, finally, in 2017, we do have a sequel with Harrison Ford. It's funny, Harrison Ford, like, you can just tell, he's... He's got enough money. He doesn't yeah. need the money, right? He comes back. But he keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back and doing Star Wars. And, and now I guess Indiana Jones. He's got a big another, heart. And he came back. What a good sport. And he does Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. With uh, with Ryan uh, Gosling. Yeah. Now, from what I understand, he truly does love the, the character of Indiana Jones. And he okay, enjoys good. that character. Good, good. Harrison Ford, he could care less. I mean, Harrison Han Solo. Ford. <laughs> he could care less about his actual identity. Say, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Han Solo. Han Solo, he could care less. Well, yeah. They, <laughs> As He tried to have Han Solo killed. Well, remember the scene in, is it Last Jedi? Or is it, I guess it's Rise of Skywalker, right? When Kylo Ren sees they meet, yeah, the ghost, back on his ghost. Yeah. Yeah. And they ask uh, Harrison Ford in an interview whether he was a force ghost. He goes, I don't know what the hell a force ghost is. <laughs> I don't care. What the hell is a force ghost? I have no idea. I just showed up and read yeah. my mind. <laughs> but it was a good, that was, that was, and uh, I really feel like um, since Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back or whatever, I feel like those lines in Rise of Skywalker from Harrison Ford like were the most yeah. heartfelt lines. Yeah. You know. Certainly. So. But that's beside. <laughs> anyway, so, we are going to watch in much better fidelity. And, and by the way, I, I kind of choice. I don't think we can watch it on VHS. <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of want to watch. I mean, as much as I enjoyed this exercise we had this afternoon, yeah, I want to go back and just watch the Final Cut and Blu-ray. Just I know. So, I feel like I need a shower. <laughs> I like I love. Like you go out and play in the mud, and it feels good. But now, yeah, you wanna, yeah. 
shower and get clean. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Or when you listen to, you know, your favorite album on vinyl and you're like, oh, I'm getting all retro and everything. And then you were like, all right, let me listen to it on CD. Then it starts to like skip. Actually listen to it, you know, <laughs> so I can hear stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's funny. Um, you know, VHS never made the comeback like vinyl did. No, it did not. <laughs> it did not. It will not. No, it, it will not. not. Eight tracks did not. Cassette tapes. Well, yeah. I don't know. Cassette tapes, in, in a kind of quirky way, there are some indie bands now that are releasing. <laughs> they only release it on cassette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cassette. But, yeah. Uh, you know, that's just silly. That That is silly. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I did. did I mean, what, again, this is one of those movies where, you, the, you know, books, documentaries have been made way more than what we can get into we've scratched the surface of what makes this movie great but every time i watch it i i I, I like it more had such a huge impact on the kind of depictions of the future Mm -hmm. that you know that would come and everything it's kind of like calls back to blade runner the fifth element yeah on and on and on on. yep so um it uh there's a reason for that because it's that good yeah yeah and I and here's the the strange thing is I do not remember and I think we mentioned this last week much about the sequel. I do remember having liked it, so it wasn't mm-hmm. like I left disappointed and thought, "Boy, that was a waste." Yeah, I enjoyed it, but I, I did I enjoy it enough to to I mean, it was one time. I've seen it one time. Yeah, so I'm anxious now to to see it again. Yeah, um, that's a that that's a really good question. Um, I've seen it a couple times. I've seen it a few times. Um, I have it on disc, right. so you know that I've committed. I have to it on it. HBO Max. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the you know the question is does does it need to exist? Mm-hmm. Does it exist just because it can exist, or does it do something interesting for the story? You know, so that that will be interesting to right. to to look at again. And was the director, which is Dennis. Villeneuve. <laughs> yeah. What's this? Is that is that's, he that's the director close. for Dune? Probably. I yeah. 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 But um, is he just trying to kind of like replicate Ridley Scott style, or is is he is he doing something interesting thematically? Mm. You know, with that style. So that'll It'll be, be interesting um, kind of. Take that into account. It's funny. My entire life, I want to hate Ryan Gosling for some reason. And every time I watch a movie with him, he's great. He's great. He's great. I mean, just you don't hold the notebook against him. No, maybe that's my problem. But I remember Ides of March, of course, um, was great. Blade Runner. He's great in that. Good stuff. Drive. Drive. Yes. Let him be Because he was in the Mickey Mouse Club, maybe. Was he really? (laughs) He was, yeah, with with Brittany and with uh, Christina Aguilera and Justin. All four of them were in the Mickey Mouse Club. The new Mickey Mouse Club. That's okay. I mean, they can be in that and still be great. Well, I will say, uh, Justin Timberlake, and clearly he's a very talented musician, singer, actor, even on like a comedian. Clearly. Um, But we watched Palmer, which was an above average film. I don't know if you saw Palmer. I haven't seen it. Um, Pretty predictable. I didn't feel like I wasted my my time. I enjoyed it. Uh, But he's he's a solid dramatic actor, too. Yeah, he is. He's good. He's in Black Snake Moan. Mm. He's good in that. I haven't seen that. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, folks, uh, is that all you'd like to say about uh, one of our most beloved films? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Yeah. <laughs> go see it now, folks. <laughs> all right. Well, it was it was actually I will say this. It was worth seeing again on VHS. That right. was actually a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. So Good. Well, I'm glad you were able to come over and <laughs> yeah. post COVID days and enjoy. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been the Movie Day Podcast with Rick and Dave. I am Dave. And I'm Rick. See you next week.